Uh, well, do grab that passage and uh, keep it open in front of you. I think you'll find that uh, helpful if you can. Um, I guess like many of us, um, these last few days have been spent, for me, uh, kind of processing the news of Her Majesty's death. And, um, of course, we all knew, didn't we, that the day would come. <laughs> um, she, was, uh, she was 96, after all. Um, and, and as those who share her faith in the Lord Jesus, we, we know, don't we, she is now more alive than ever. Um, we've sung for decades, haven't we, God save our gracious Queen. And friends, that's exactly what he's done. Um, so we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Um, but friends, many have noted um, that the, the, the passing away of the Queen feels like the passing away of an era, doesn't it? Um, an era that she perhaps embodied, but an era that we feel is passing away itself um, and, and perhaps set to pass away more quickly, we, we may fear, now that her sort of steady, constant presence has been removed from it. You know, she's, she's reigned through an era where Britain, where Europe, uh, the West uh, have been increasingly loosening themselves from their, albeit nominal, Christian moorings. And, and we may fear that with her passing, the cultural shift may only accelerate. That may be true. Um, we rejoice in the fact that Her Majesty placed her trust in the gospel uh, of the Lord Jesus. But she's from an era that we fear may be passing away. Can we really imagine that the same gospel can save today in the very post-Christian environment that we, we now find ourselves in? I think that's the question, really, we've been asking ourselves over the last few weeks, isn't it, in this little series in the book of Acts. Can the gospel really cut it in, in 21st century Europe? And, of course, we're not asking this question out of sort of academic interest, um, but because we've started a conversation here at, at Grace Church uh, about whether and when and how we could start to plant and grow uh, a, a new church in our little corner of 21st century Europe. Um, so we've got a vested interest, haven't we? We've got, we've got skin in the game um, in, in finding out whether, whether Europe in this day and age is really the time and the place for new gospel ventures uh, like we see here in the book of Acts. Or, or is it rather a time for kind of hunkering down and, and riding out this, this post-Christian uh, storm uh, that, that we may feel ourselves to be in? Um, we sought to answer some of those questions by looking at how the gospel penetrated the remarkably similar culture, uh, actually, of first century Europe, as Paul and others sought to, to take the gospel um, out of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and into the, the pagan, uh, non-Christian environs of, of, of Europe in chapter 16 to 18, in response, of course, to Christ's commission to his church in, in chapter 1, verse 8, to go and do that. So what have we seen as we've gone through these chapters? Well, I think it's been really encouraging, actually, hasn't it? Because what we've seen that Paul does is to preach the gospel and plant little churches. That's what he's been doing, isn't it? Um, he does that in an intentional way. We've seen that. He seems to preach and plant in some of the regional hubs of Europe. He, he sort of goes into different regions. Uh, he goes where there are people. He goes where he can get a hearing um, with the aim of, of planting little churches, little toeholds, if you like, for the gospel in those regions from where the gospel can then grow and spread out further. Um, and his basic method, we've seen that as well, is to preach the gospel by systematically explaining the Bible. Um, being culturally flexible, 
but being biblically faithful and pointing all the time to the one who fulfills it all, the, the Lord Jesus. And the result of this activity by the power of God's Spirit is that people become Christians and churches get planted. Um, and this is irrespective, we've seen this as well, isn't it? it uh, haven't we? It's, it's irrespective of, of who those people are or what their cultural or religious background is. Acts shows us Jews and Greeks and Pharisees and Samaritans and God-fearers and pagans and intellectuals and slaves and Asians and Europeans and philosophers and prison officers um, all becoming followers of the Lord Jesus uh, and members of, of newly planted churches as God's word is sort of systematically proclaimed by God's people in the power of God's spirit. Um, and I, I think that's a great encouragement to us, isn't it? That no society, no cultural background, no moment in time, um, you know, whether it's pre-Christian, nominally Christian or post-Christian, um, nothing can stand in the way of the inevitable growth and spread of the gospel as it's proclaimed by God's people to the ends of the earth. I think that's a great encouragement to us, isn't it? It's a great encouragement not towards gospel retreat and, and consolidation, but towards gospel advance and spread, I think. And actually, um, last time, as we saw Paul heading home from Europe, um, we got a hint, didn't we, that the same thing is going to happen now in the Asian city of Ephesus, as, as, we, saw, uh, as we saw Paul um, initially last week, didn't we, proclaiming the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue? And then, very significantly, as we saw him dropping off Priscilla and Aquila there on his way to Antioch, where, where through their teaching of Apollos, you remember Apollos, this disciple of John the Baptist, who, who becomes a full disciple of the Lord Jesus, he is equipped to engage with the Jews in the synagogue before he then moves on to, to Corinth, whereupon Paul comes back to Ephesus himself, makes a return for what turns out to be over two years of gospel ministry, first in the synagogue, uh, verse 8, uh, and then in the hall of Tyrannus, verse 9, during which time all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So this pattern of Paul's in Europe, you know, of, of preaching and planting in some of the regional centers in the area seems to be the continuing pattern in, in the Asian city of, of Ephesus as well, doesn't it? And we're told directly there of, of the huge gospel impact that had on, on, the, on, the, on the whole surrounding region. Um, and, and one of the reasons why a ministry in Ephesus was able to have such a regional uh, impact there was because of the temple of Artemis in the city. Um, so Ephesus was also a trade, a, a, a center for commerce and trade. Um, so that brought people from, from all over the region to Ephesus. But significantly, it was a bit of a religious center too. And, and not only because there were large numbers of people coming to visit the temple of, of Artemis, but it was also a center for occult practices, the magic arts, sorcery, that kind of thing um, as well. So once again, actually, it's a great place to preach the gospel, isn't it? And, and plant a church. You know, it's a place of great gospel need. It's a place in the region where people came, um, a, a great place. But what we're going to see in today's passage is that doing gospel ministry in that kind of multi-faith society is, is not plain sailing. Um, and, and this is because of the nature of the gospel message itself. See, the message of the gospel is a call to repent, isn't it? It's a call to turn away from false gods and turn to the true and the living God through his son, the Lord Jesus. 
And as we'll see this morning, this results in a clash of religions, as as Paul preaches the, the gospel in Ephesus. And I think that's helpful for us to see Because, of course, we live today, don't we, in a multi-faith, multi-religious society. A society that wants to say all religions lead to God. Um, And, of course, what's underneath statements like that in a secular society like like ours is actually the belief that none of them are true anyway. You know, they're all just a crutch for those who need one. Um, So why not pick the one you fancy? But what happens when the gospel of the Lord Jesus, when the Christianity of the Bible comes up against religion. That's what we're going to see in this uh, passage this morning. And what we'll see is that it doesn't result in harmony. All roads leading to God. It leads to clashes. And there are two clashes with Christianity. I particularly want to notice um, uh, this morning. The first of them, uh, you'll see in verses 11 to 20, is a clash between Christianity and Judaism. So we'll see that in 11 to 20, but we'll also look back as well, because we've, we've seen a bit of this already, of course. Um, and of course, Christianity has its roots in Judaism, doesn't it? But Christianity fulfills and so displaces Judaism. And, and Judaism in the first century was not one single cohesive religion. Um, rather, they were a whole raft of sort of subgroups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, you know, uh, people following different rabbis and so on, including, as we saw last week, if you remember, the latest of these subgroups were the disciples of John the Baptist. You remember? So Apollos, uh, back in chapter 18, was a disciple of John the Baptist, wasn't he? A disciple, um, chapter 18, verse 25, who had been instructed in the way of the Lord such that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. In other words, although what Apollos knew about Jesus, um, he, 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 uh, he knew and preached accurately, he only knew what John the Baptist knew about Jesus. And because John died before Jesus died, then, then John's teaching about Jesus didn't include um, a teaching like the cross, <laughs> And, and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was incomplete. Such that in, in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 19, when Paul comes across more of these disciples of John, he needs to tell them, verse 4, that they need to believe in the one to come after him, that is Jesus. Which, if you remember, they do. So you see, the, the disciples of John were the followers, if you like, of true Judaism, weren't they? And Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism. So, so once a, uh, Jesus had come and died and risen, then Judaism was superseded because the one that Judaism pointed to and looked out for, the Messiah, he'd come. Hence, followers of Judaism were taught to become followers of Jesus as the promised Messiah. And so the fulfillment of all of God's promises to them. And friends, that's why, back in verse 8, when Paul returns to Ephesus, as he planned to do, he goes back to the synagogue for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Do you see? Because that's what Christianity is, isn't it? Christianity is a message. It's a word from God with a content to it that can be, uh, is to be, preached and explained and reasoned over such that people can be persuaded and convinced by it to become followers of the Lord Jesus. 
It's a reasonable faith that, that engages with the mind as well as just the heart. And, and notice that it's, it's as the Christian message is preached that the clash comes. So if you look back to verse 9, that describes the Jews in the synagogue becoming stubborn, doesn't it? Refusing to believe, speaking evil of the way as, as Christianity had become known. So these Jews here, they'd refused to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of their religion. And they'd spoken against the gospel. So Paul, verse 9, withdrew from them. So, so just like he'd done in Corinth in chapter 18, he did in Ephesus in chapter 19, and, and he withdrew from the synagogue, and instead, verse 9, he set up daily Bible studies in the hall of Tyrannus for, for, for two years, where patient, long-term preaching of the gospel uh, led to the spreading across the whole region of the gospel bearing much fruit. Do, do you see the point there? Although it might be popular these days to talk about all religions leading to God, it's simply not true. Because the different religions of the world say different things. And when it comes to Judaism, well, Christianity is the fulfillment of it. Such that here, those who believe it are called to believe in the one that it points to which is not about adding Jesus to Judaism. It's seeing that Jesus fulfills and so displaces Judaism. And now in looking at today's passage, you've got another encounter with Judaism, verse 14, in the form of these seven sons of Sceva. Sceva was the, a Jewish high priest. Um, uh, these seven sons of Sceva who are kind of itinerant or traveling exorcists, we're told in in verse 13. Um, but look what happens in this uh, encounter. Verse 11. Uh, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. And uh, do you notice that rather odd phrase in verse 11, extraordinary miracles? Because at first glance, you'd think it was like tautology, wouldn't you? You'd think it was like a redundant word, extraordinary. Um, uh, because surely there's no such thing as a miracle that isn't extraordinary, is it? I mean, by its very nature, uh, a miracle is, is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, but actually, the word isn't redundant. In fact, in the, in the original, in the Greek, it's, it's emphatic. So Luke wants us to know that these miracles are extraordinary. Um, but they're not extraordinary because they're miracles, because all miracles are extraordinary <laughs> in that sense. They're extraordinary because they go beyond the kind of happenings that are usually accompanying Paul's ministry. Now, we, we do see on, on, on occasion in the book of Acts uh, what Paul uh, refers to in, in 2 Corinthians 12 as the signs of a true apostle. Uh, in other words, the signs, the wonders, the mighty works that sometimes uh, accompanied that the, the apostle's ministry, but those weren't commonplace even in their ministry. And, and such is the nature of it here in, in Ephesus that it's actually extraordinary, Luke says, even for an apostle. And he is, isn't it? Kind of hankies, aprons, things that had come into contact with Paul's skin, um, sort of taken to people uh, to, who, who were sick and, and bringing healing and bringing deliverance to them. And it seems to me, actually, of all the miracles in the New Testament, these particular ones, they're, they're quite different 
aren't they, from just about anything else you, you, you read about. And indeed, the, the kind of miracles that they are could almost make them feel a bit like magic. And, and remember, Ephesus is, is a city steeped in the magic arts. It's a place where kind of Greek philosophy and culture was, was married to superstition and pagan occult practices, sorcery, such that they were preoccupied with it. They actually used to sell uh, books, uh, books of magic phrases and formulas, which, which of course were kind of mumbo-jumbo, but, but they were considered to give people great power over evil spirits and sickness and the like, and these books would sell for a small fortune. But, but although their preoccupation with pagan magic would, seem, would definitely be something Paul would deplore, yet their very interest in it provides an opening for the gospel, I think. And, and what I think we see here is the provision of quite extraordinary signs of an apostle to give a particularly powerful witness to the gospel in a culture that's fascinated by and saturated in pagan magic. But although these miracles of Paul might look a bit like magic, they're not magic, are they? Notice verse 11, who is behind these miracles? God was doing extraordinary miracles. So this isn't Paul's work. You know, he didn't do it. It might have been Paul's hanky, <laughs> but it was God's work. And, and this, is, this is seen clearly, I think, in what follows, isn't it? Because in verse 13... These, these Jewish exorcists, remember them, witnessing the extraordinary miracles that the apostle was doing, uh, tried to copy him by, by invoking the name of Jesus to help with their exorcisms, uh, trying try to cast out evil spirits by using the name of Jesus in, as one of their magic formulas, you know, like abracadabra or something. But it doesn't work for them, does it? In fact, it backfires horribly. And, and the evil spirit that they are supposed to be getting rid of actually gets rid of them and kind of masters them, overpowers them, verse 16, such that they, they flee uh, out of their house. It's a massive failure, isn't it? Of course it is. Because when you're dealing with Jesus, you're not dealing with a magic word or a piece of mumbo-jumbo. You're dealing with the kingdom of God. And, and the extraordinary miracles here, they're not magic tricks to be learned and copied. They're God's signs to a culture that's steeped in magic to point them to his word. The, the word that, as we've seen, calls people to repentance, to turn around, and trust in Jesus, as it's patiently preached and explained and reasoned with. And indeed, that's exactly what happens here, isn't it? Verse 17, as the news of this incident spread to the residents of Ephesus, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You see that the result of this incident on the people of Ephesus was initially fear as they started to realize that Jesus you know is a power that they cannot control and play around with he's not going to be a lackey for anyone who calls on his name and that fear soon gives way to extolling Jesus or magnifying Jesus which we can see means look that many people repented and turned to Jesus for their salvation, evidenced in verse 18 by the fact that, that believers came and confessed 
their involvement in sorcery, and a number of those who practiced the magic arts bought their expensive books of of magic formulas and burned them. (laughs) 50,000 pieces of silver worth, we're told. And friends, that's an act, isn't it, of mass repentance. That's what that is. They're turning away from a lifestyle that they now see to be evil, and they're devoting themselves to Jesus Christ. In other words, they've been touched by the gospel. And it's not the miracles that have transformed them, is it? No, the miracles have just made a culture steeped in the occult kind of sit up and listen. But it's the word of God that has transformed them. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus that they've responded to with repentance and trust. Do you see? Even in this culture that's steeped in magic... It's God's word that is growing his church. And and actually in verse 20, Luke confirms that this is the case. When he says, look, as, as he does actually several times throughout the book, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do you see? It's the word that does the work. That the gospel is not something... Um, accompanied by the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And, and we can often imagine, can't we, that people, people need extraordinary miracles because that's how people will believe. But that isn't right, is it? People don't believe because of signs and wonders, but because the word is doing its work. Paul himself tells us this, doesn't he? Do you remember him in 1 Corinthians 1 where he's, he's reminding the church there, Jews demand signs, you know, show us a miracle and then we'll believe. Greeks seek wisdom, you know, tell us about the latest intellectual ideas, Jesus. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you see? Signs and wonders don't make people believe. They don't even do it here where there are signs and wonders. No, it's the word of God that grows the church of God. That's what we've seen right through Acts, isn't it? It's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Which means, friends, we can expect God to transform people as we trust the Bible to be the Bible and so unleash it as the power of God for salvation. So we can see, uh, can't we, what happens when the gospel of the Lord Jesus comes up against the Jewish religion, whether it's the, whether it's the Judaism of the synagogue whether it's the the pure, if you like, Judaism of the disciples of John the Baptist, whether it's this kind of toxic mix of Judaism and sorcery that we see here, you see the point. The gospel is not compatible with it. You can't add Jesus to it. You can't hijack the name of Jesus and tack it on to your own religious practices. No, true Christianity causes people who believe in it to turn from those things in in repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus alone for salvation as its message 
is, is patiently preached and, and explained and reasoned over such that people can be persuaded and convinced by it. Well, so much for, for Christianity and Judaism then. Have a look at now in, in the rest of the passage, 21 to 41, about uh, Christianity and idolatry. So uh, verse 21, look, Paul, um, he's, he's uh, uh, having intentionally focused on these, these key regional cities in Europe, now Ephesus in Asia, declares his resolve, look, to go to the sort of center of them all, the heart of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. See that in verse 21? And, and actually that verse, uh, if you can see it there, verse 21, it actually sets out the program for the remainder of the book of Acts. Um, which is now going to follow Paul through Macedonia and Achaia to Jerusalem and and then on to Rome. Um, But before he gets a chance to leave Ephesus, look, verse 23, he has to deal with no small disturbance concerning the way. So So this is not just opposition to Paul. Okay, This is opposition to the whole Christian movement, if you like, now known as the way. And and as you can see, the disturbance is all connected with the worship of the goddess Artemis, or Diana, um, whose temple in Ephesus, actually one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, And it it was huge, massive temple, one of the biggest buildings in the ancient world. Massive temple, and, and it attracted many kind of, I suppose, religious tourists, as it were, into the, into the city, many visitors, which was brilliant trade, for the silversmith Demetrius, in verse 24, who was the master of the, the Ephesian guild of silversmiths. Right? So, so it brought a lot of work and therefore money, trade, to the craftsmen in his guild as, as they, they produced little silver shrines or, or idols of the goddess Artemis. You know, something you could take home with you, stick it in the corner of your room, go home, pray to, that kind of thing. But the problem was that so influential was the preaching of Paul in Ephesus that it started to have a detrimental impact on the trade of these little silver idols. (laughs) And this is because Paul was preaching the gospel. And so was preaching, verse 26, that gods made with hands are not gods. And so the impact of this was, look, verse 27, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, (laughs) she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see, in other words, Paul's preaching of the gospel is a threat to the idol worship of the Ephesians and the money-making that's happening on the back of it. And so Demetrius makes his complaint against the Christians to those in his guild and they're, they're outraged. Verse 28. Uh, when they heard this, they were enraged uh, and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, uh, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. It's a riot, isn't it, that, that's, that's happening? Um, it displays all the characteristics that you'd expect to see in a riot, wouldn't it? Kind of crowds chanting, this sort of herd-like behaviour, confusion, violence. Uh, I was trying to think of the last time we saw anything like that here in the UK. It's been a little while now, hasn't it? But I was thinking about the, the 2011 riots. We had some big 
riots then, didn't we? Places like Tottenham, uh, for example, huge riots, where, where they, they reported afterwards uh, a total of 1,800 years of prison sentences were handed out by the Crown Prosecution Service after those, those, those riots. And, and it's something like that, something on that scale, a city-wide riot, which was happening here in Ephesus. That The word had got round, courtesy of Demetrius, that the Christians were causing a threat to their idolatry and so a threat to their business. And that was enough to get a crowd started. And you know when a crowd like that starts, you know, others join in, don't they? Uh, I reckon you'd have to think in terms of thousands of people here involved in this. The theatre that's mentioned in verse 29 where they gather, that was the amphitheatre in, in Ephesus which holds about 25,000 people. So there's, you know, there's repeated chanting going on. Great is Artemis. For hours on end, verse 34. There's confusion, verse 29. Many of them not even knowing why they're there, verse 32. There's mob violence going on against some of the Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus and so on, verse 29. It's a full-blown riot. But you see, if all religions lead to God, well, this riot would never have happened, would it? If all religions lead to God, then Demetrius could just have got some craftsmen to make some nice little Jesus idols, you know, to go along with the Artemis ones, and, and everyone would have been happy. But you see, the message of the gospel is a message of repentance that causes those who believe in it to turn from their idols to the true and living God, as Paul puts it in Thessalonians. Because, as he says here in verse 26, gods made with hands are not gods. They're not. Now, of course, friends, it has to be said, doesn't it? Sadly, there are not only large parts of today's world which, which have their idols, but actually parts of the church have them too, don't they? We've got our Christian idols as well, little statues of Mary and Jesus that people bow down to and worship and so on. But friends, that's not biblical Christianity. That's kind of Christianized idolatry. And what we see here is that the gospel, when it's believed turns people away from idolatry, whether that's kind of Christianized one or, or any other form. That's why there's a clash with idolatry here. And that's why the proclaiming of the gospel is ruining a business that depends on idolatry. It's because the gospel is a message of repentance, of turning away from error, from false gods and falsehood. And so if the gospel is true, then idolatry cannot be true. And any other false god cannot be true because the gospel calls people to turn away from those things. So if you want to believe that all, Christi all religions are right, you have to conclude that biblical Christianity is wrong. You've got no other choice. Biblical Christianity will not allow you to add it alongside other religions. The gospel doesn't give you that option. It's a message of repentance, of turning away from. Now, of course, we can see in this passage that this is evidentially true of Artemis worship, can't we? But friends, it's true of every religion, of course. For, for example, the, the, the Quran states that Jesus was a prophet, but not God. You know, for, for a Muslim to call Jesus God would be blasphemy. Also, the Quran states that Jesus was not crucified. So those, those two things alone, that you know, the, divinity, the divinity of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, are, are two things that are clearly taught in the Bible and are central to the gospel. 
And, and so over the person and work of Jesus, the Bible and the Quran contradict each other. So if the Bible is right, then the Quran must be wrong. If Islam is right, then Christianity must be wrong. It's the same with Judaism here. We've, we've seen it here, isn't it? Christianity shares half of its scriptures with Judaism. We've got much in common, of course. But in the final event, Judaism rejects Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the scriptures, as, as the promised Messiah. And in doing so, it contradicts the New Testament. So if Judaism is true, then Christianity must be false. But friends, if Christianity is true, then Judaism must be false. And those who follow it cannot be God's people because they're not trusting in Jesus for their salvation. Do do, do you see the point? It is of the nature of biblical Christianity that it will clash with every other religion. It refuses to mix with them. It will cause people, when it's believed, to turn away from them as false, as they believe the gospel. It says to followers of other religions, and it says to atheists too, by the way, because atheism is a religion too. It also says to those who believe all religions to lead to God, no. (laughs) For those groups of people, it says, no, that's not true. You're trusting in the wrong thing. You're going the wrong way. You need to turn around. And trust in Jesus Christ alone instead. And that's what we see here, isn't it? Whether it's the many forms of Judaism around, whether it's idol worship, whether it's anything else. To be a Christian is to be persuaded by the message of the gospel as it's patiently proclaimed and explained and reasoned over that it's exclusively true. And so necessarily renouncing the alternatives as false as no gods at all. But friends, little note of caution here, which is that believing the gospel to be true and other religions therefore to be false is not justification for being disrespectful to other religions and their adherents. Notice in verses 35 to 40, the angry crowd is, is quietened down by the town clerk, who's a, who's a pagan himself, who reminds the crowd that despite the crowd's anger with them, these Christians have done nothing wrong. They hadn't desecrated the temple, verse 37. They hadn't blasphemed the name of Artemis. So in a a multi-faith community, just like Ephesus and like ours, these Christians had clearly taught the exclusivity of the gospel without insulting their gods. And friends, how important that is, isn't it? To speak the truth, but but to speak it in love, to do it with gentleness and respect. So, as we come away from this passage, two two things maybe. If if you're not a Christian this morning yet, but maybe you're investigating the Christian faith, given what we've heard from from God's word this morning, could I urge you to, to carefully examine the message of Jesus before you decide to trust in something else instead? Its claim, as as we've we've seen, is that it should be believed exclusively because it's exclusively true. And that's a massive claim, of course. But it's a claim that I would suggest we we dare not dismiss without making absolutely sure. Uh, That's why we run a thing here called Christianity Explored uh, regularly. That's a great place to begin that investigation, actually. We'll be doing another one shortly. I'd love it if you come and talk with me about being involved in that. That would be a brilliant thing to do. Secondly, though, for those of us who are Christians this morning and, and so have come to know Jesus... as as the way, the truth, and the life, and and that idols are are no gods at all. 
Friends, let, let these chapters in Acts give us confidence to preach the gospel and plant churches in any kind of day and age, including ours. But let them also challenge us as well. Because I, I think we see some differences here, don't we? Have you picked this up over the weeks? There are some differences here, aren't there, between the evangelism of Paul and others and, and what much of maybe today's evangelism can often look like. Um, where much of what we do is often focused on simply inviting people to church, for example, whereas Paul takes the message out into the secular world. Um, or where much of our evangelism can tend to focus on simply having an experience of God, whereas Paul seeks to reason and explain and persuade from the Scriptures so that decisions for Christ express understanding, not simply emotion. Or, or where much of our evangelism involves sort of brief encounters with people from which we expect quick results whereas much of Paul's evangelism involves sticking for years in one place, faithfully sowing the seed of the gospel, and, and in due time, uh, reaping a harvest. So friends, I, I think these chapters can encourage us and challenge us and equip us and spur us on, can't they? Towards confident, faithful, sustained gospel proclamation as we explain the Bible by the power of God's Spirit with the aim of churches being planted even in 21st century Europe. Should we pray about that? Let's do that. Father, we thank you for this uh, passage of your word. Um, thank you for how it reminds us that in a world of many religions, um, a world that encourages us, I guess, to treat them all the same, that your word is truth, that that gospel word that declares you to be alone, the true and the living God, the creator and sustainer of the world, and declares your son, the Lord Jesus, as the only saviour of the world. Father, please uh, may what we've learned this morning have increased our confidence in you and in your son. So that we may boldly and confidently proclaim him and live for him. And we pray this all in his name.